I'm Kate LaVale. And I'm Michael Vieira. Welcome to this episode of The Canary Group. We've spent our careers working in global strategy, communications, analytics, and intelligence. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's that nothing is ever quite as it seems. With more information than ever, moving faster than ever, it's becoming harder than ever to understand the world around us. So we're on a mission. To combat the tyranny of conventional wisdom. To connect the dots and answer the so what. And empower you to do the same. Welcome to this episode of the Canary Group. We are very excited to have a special guest with us today. Yes, our guest today is Commander Salamander, who is the well-known navalist, uh, blogger, geopolitical commentator, uh, who has his own website. And I'd like to introduce everyone to Commander Salamander. Commander Sal, could you please tell everybody why you go by under the moniker of Commander Salamander? Well, first of all, thank you very much for the uh, for the invitation. And no, it, it's funny, uh, during the pre-show, we, we kind of joked around a bit about, I'm not a boomer, I'm actually Gen X. Well, <laughs> uh, I actually started writing uh, online back uh, in 2004. And before then, I bounced around these uh, little archaic things called message boards and various things. And, you know, back in the day, everybody had a, a cute little name that they went by back in, for those that remember Washington, D.C. in the uh, punk era or had watched the latest Wonder Woman knows there was a store in Georgetown called Commander Salamander. I just thought that was always funny. And so I, I uh, when I when I made 05 in the Navy, I just kind of picked that up as something funny. And I started writing online and I wrote in that capacity online also just to be able to, especially back then where the environment was very small. Uh, when you talk about the discussion space, I was like, I don't need anybody bothering me at work. I'll just use this. And then I left active duty in 09 and I kind of came out in the open, so to speak. For, did that for a couple of years until a few weird things happened. And I realized this was just a hobby and uh, I would just stick with it for marketing more than anything else. So there's nothing, nothing secret, nothing esoteric, nothing unusual about it. It's just kind of how uh, Sam Clemens wrote under the name Mark Twain, and that's how most people knew him. So he mm-hmm. kind of went by both names. Uh, so Sal is my Mark Twain, and I'm happy with that. Absolutely. I've only known you as Commander Salamander, um, and I think I've been following you probably since, I think probably before 2009. And just everything up front, I'm, a, I'm also a former naval officer. So, I mean, just to let you know that that's you know, where we're both coming from here. Uh, but one of the things too is though that I've, that you have become I think in a lot of naval circles, especially here in the United States. I think you are very well respected and very well known uh, for taking up naval matters and talking about things that are important to the Navy, and also why, and also geopolitical uh, things too. Yeah, I um, I try to stick mostly to the naval things, but again, it kind of goes back to the the origin story, so to speak. Uh, I found that in some ways it's free therapy. I have a variety of topics I like to talk about and I'll um, I'll, I'll plow into them, so to speak. 
And if people find it interesting, that's great. If not, that's fine too. And uh, there are some people that have, I kind of call them for those that, that read my, my Substack and before that, what I had over at Blogspot, I call it the front porch. I've had a regular group of people that have been commenting uh, since 2004. It's uh, been a very long relationship, almost two decades. Uh, some of them I know in real life and in person. Um, a matter of fact, a little over a decade ago, I hosted a couple of events, one in Mayport, Florida, and one up in Washington, D.C., where we just met in a bar, had uh, you know a couple dozen of us, had a little face-to-face greeting. And some of the people uh, that I've known through the years, uh, I kind of tapped them on the shoulder because I already knew them and said, hey, you're in the circle of confidence. It's actually me. <laughs> it's actually Sam Clemens, not Mark Twain. And uh, that's been... A, a good experience with uh, with those folks, and they have added a lot to my knowledge base and the feedback I've received from them when sometimes, as you know, in the information space, you don't have perfect knowledge, you don't have uh, perfect understanding, but when there are five parts to an issue, but you have three parts, sometimes you just write on the three parts and try not to get over your skis in the other two parts, and if you have a... a good circle of acquaintances and friends. They can tap you on the shoulder and either give you corrections where needed or or give you some hints on those other two parts of the five-part equation. You just didn't have visibility on the issue. One other thing that I've noticed about uh, about your, I, I don't think it's more of a blog, I, I guess it's more of a website at this point. Is that a fair assessment of calling it that? I, I think so because it has my regular prattlings on of the events of the day, but it also links to a, a podcast I co-host with Eagle One, also known as Mark Tempest, who uh, has been writing online as long as I have, maybe a few months more. And he and I have been doing that podcast since uh, 2010. And I also, uh, you know, I put up there a thing, the books that I've been reading, though I'm a few books behind, I got to update that list pretty well. And uh, I, I try as much as possible I try to, I guess if you're going to put me in a classification, I'm an opinion guy, but I try to link as much as possible uh, in my writing to my sources and to links and opinions of people that I find interesting. So it's not quite a, a link serve, so to speak, but as I'm writing, I've, I've gotten some great feedback over the years where people will, will say something to the effect, I wonder why you were saying that. And then I followed the hypertext link and it, it made sense to me. So I try to include that as well. You've also written on the U.S. Naval Institute. Um, I've seen you on there. Yeah, there. Um, I've written for third parties uh, for a few times back when Andrew Breitbart ran. Breitbart, he had a thing called Big Peace. I was part of the initial cadre that wrote on there, so you can find a link to the Big Piece archive. Also, I was with the original group of people uh, that wrote uh, and started the U.S. Naval Institute blog that, uh, if anybody goes there right now, it it died uh, a few months after I quit writing for it. And so the archive for things that I wrote over at the Naval Institute, you can find a link to it there as well. Um, in my other life, I've worked as an intelligence analyst, and I've often pointed people toward your writing, uh, more so that people could get a long-term look at things. One of the things that you've had on your, uh, on your, we'll say on your website, 
you've had things where you've been following what you called the long game, where you were following China, or you were following the development of ships over well over a decade. Um, and that's something that I think that brings a lot of value is the fact that you've been consistently returning and talking about subjects for years and years. Thanks. And that's one thing I've tried to emphasize is the fact, is especially when you're looking at the defense media, I derive so much of my content from them. But whether you're talking about defense media, whether you have people in the, in the Pentagon or you have people up at the congressional staff, these are busy people who their window is very, very narrow, whether we're talking about a couple of years palm cycle or just getting through the next NDAA or just get to the end of their 24 to 36 month tour. And as a result, a lot of our conversations don't look long term. And the real long term thinkers that we have uh, in the military, things such as the Office of Net Assessment, uh, those things rarely make it past the, the cipher door outside the skiff or the reports are just simply buried. And there are long-term trends that I, uh, we as a nation and we as a Navy used to be much better in tracking that we don't anymore. I don't know uh, what the malfunction is in OPNAV, but I, I like to use the illusion of a very old piece of machinery. Anybody who's had a, a ship in salt or brackish water knows what I'm, I'm speaking of. Over time, if it's properly, not properly abraded, cleaned, hauled out. Uh, it's going to get accretions on it and it gets a lot more drag. Things stop moving and there is a lack of a long-term view that's systemic in the military. And so I've tried to raise that, that you know, the long game that you speak of. I actually did a post earlier this year. I said, do I, can I even use that term anymore? Because what we started writing about 19 years ago when we started the long game series it's come to fruition, and I was mm -hmm. not—I was not the first person to see it by any stretch of the imagination. But the rise of China is inevitable, and how that rise would manifest itself was also inevitable. But it seemed at most every turn, our national security apparatus either would not look at it, would deny it, or would simply be unable to see it for ideological reasons. And same thing with, you mentioned some of our ship programs, uh, the LCS that I, it's amazing how these things all kind of happened in the double zeros. Um, though LCS is manifestation, even the Chinese problem originates back in the 1990s, but my writing only existed after 04. But LCS was another program that you could see was born of a toxic climate where people and organizations mm. were uh, convinced via their own arrogance that really a couple of centuries of best practices on how to iteratively build a more successful Navy were ignored. Problems were waved away. Again, I go back to the word arrogance. Uh, technology risk and program risk were just told it, it'll work itself out. Don't worry about it. And so we had also political issues. Uh, one of the my favorite and in the long run, I could, I could see the defense, but it forced people to either knowingly lie or knowingly be incompetent. They originally were supposed to down-select from two LCS classes to one. That never happened. Decisions were constantly made that was not going to produce a warship that was going to be of any use 
outside of this very narrowly scoped, highly assumption-based conops and vignettes, which, you know, as we see in 2023, the, the people who warned about it were, were correct. And you can even draw that line out to the problems they've had with the Ford aircraft carrier. The Ford would have been usable much earlier had we not tried to shoehorn too much unproven technology into it. You can solve a lot of problems with time, a lot of money, a lot of wasted careers in sailor sweat. That's how we got the LPD-17 to finally uh, be a better than suboptimal program. That's why Ford is actually going to you know, be usable down the road. But it didn't have to be this way, but it, it was. If I could just interject uh, for our audience members, we used a lot of acronyms here. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> no, understood. I, I was tracking, but I realized that a lot of people here, uh, and maybe Kate also, uh, were not really aware of what those were. You used some terms. You used OPNAV. You used CONOP. You used LPD. You used LCS. If we could just real quickly just kind of circle around and tell me, uh, just tell our audience what these things are. Sure. Well, I did you get LCS. Littoral. Little crappy, crappy ship. Littoral yes. <laughs> combat ship, which is actually a Corvette. But again, everybody loves buzzwords. And so they had to invent something else to massage somebody's ego. Ultimately, so many of these conditions, they're not really engineering problems. They're not shipbuilding problems. They're people problems. It's culture. It's mindset. It's humility or lack of it. It's historical curiosity or lack of it. That's really where a lot of these problems come from. But so LCS, littoral combat ship. I LP. am so struck and I'm sorry, I will, I will get okay. back to the lexicon in a second, but I'm so struck by some of the things that you said and just how eerily familiar they sound. Um, I'm sure to Michael's ears as well, as far as the amount of resistance one faces going into trying to, trying to, enlighten folks on long-term strategy and the implications. And I feel like increased technology and sort of the cadence of innovation has really been, a, has it's been problematic, uh, as well as just stakeholders and short-term objectives. All of those things seem to work against being flexible enough to consider that long-term strategy. Yeah, I'd like to get back to the uh, technology and flexibility just a second, because that that's that's an interesting multifaceted problem that, that works out in different ways. But let's see, we, we talk about OPNAV. OPNAV, it's the, it's the staff around the chief of naval operations, which is the most senior naval officer. That's where a lot of your upper level management decisions to man, trip, and acquaint, uh, equip the Navy comes from. You, um, LPD 17, that, that's the San Antonio class amphibious ship. That's our, our most modern ship that we have. Um, let's see, we got, we got OpNav, LCS. Uh, uh, CONOP, I think. Oh, CONOP. CONOP, that's, that's a pretty concept of operation. That's where somebody says, for instance, um, if anybody that's read my writing on LCS has seen me mention about the Manning CONOP, the Manning concept of operations, which was one of the fundamental failures of the entire LCS program, there was a concern 25 years ago, as there is now, about recruiting enough people. So you either do a better job recruiting and retaining, or you learn how to operate with fewer people. And you can do it a few ways. You can say, 
we need 100 people to run this, but if you want to run it with 75, we need this type of automation. Or somebody says, we need 100 people to run this program, this ship. They say, okay, you're only going to get 75, but I need 100. You're going to get 75. You figure out how to happen, how to make it happen. And so they go, okay, well, everybody's going to work 100-hour weeks, which means the ship can only deploy for four months because at the end of four months, um, people are burned out, losing their mind, and jumping overboard. I exaggerate a little bit, but not really. Um, and then the ship's going to have, like the Fitz, I think it was the Fitzgerald, not the McCain in 2017. It's going to have the. A, that was the destroyer that had gotten into an accident. Yeah, they clearly, they, afterwards, they found out that the Combat Information Center was littered with uh, bottles full of piss because uh, the ship was breaking down around it because they didn't have enough people. Pardon my uh, my use of the vernacular. Uh, it, and so that's what uh, a CONOPS is, a concept of operations. And, and the Manning CONOPS is just one example of that. You raised a very excellent point, too, because I also don't know if our listeners understand really what the operational tempo is on a ship. And we can return back to Kate's question just in a moment. But I was just hoping you could just enlighten our listeners about what it is like aboard a ship and why what the operational temple is it's seven days a week it's 24 7 right uh, it absolutely is and i kind of back in the mid 90s for those that have ever been on a and if nobody's ever been on and there's plenty of museum ships you should go on them and uh, they're called ladder wells but they're stairs and they're metal stairs they're very steep you go up them well in the mid 90s um i was coming off a very a very damp deck and I slipped and I slid down um, while carrying a bunch of stuff. I wind up resting on my elbows, but I slid down and I landed really hard on the deck with both of my feet very flat and got plantar fasciitis, which is very disturbing for a, a man who's uh, you know, 30 years old to have to deal with walking like somebody's 85. And I had a lot of pain because of that. But uh, when I was due to deploy next, uh, talking to the doctor, and he said, hey, we're going to get you some orthotics. Because I told him, he said, well, what's this deployment going to be like? And I said, well, basically, six days a week, I'll be working 18-hour days. And then on Sunday, I'll, I'll, I'll take a break and only work 10. And I'll be wearing, be wearing steel-toed boots the whole time. And he said, this is a great opportunity. So I was able to put orthotics in my boots. And after six months, my plantar fasciitis was, was cured. Uh, but that's what it's like. You, you, you get up in the morning. If you get more than six hours of sleep, you're a slacker. You put on your boots, you work, you eat. If you're lucky, you work out, then you go to sleep. And that's if nothing exciting is happening. If, if things get exciting, then you might go a few days with, without sleeping. And work needs to be done. Uh, things break. Storms happen, people get sick, people leave, people can no longer do their jobs. So instead of working 18-hour weeks, maybe you're going to work 18 hours a day. Maybe you're going to have to work 20 hours. And then you'll, you will got 15 minutes to get to sleep and 15 minutes to wake up. So you get four hours of sleep, maybe four and a half on a good day. That's just the way it works. Um, it's an excruciating schedule, which is why people always tr should give a little bit of grace when they read a story about, we'll go back to the collisions in 2007 we alluded to earlier with the Fitzgerald and McCain. Uh, right the month, it was either a month or two months before the collision. Again, I think it was the Fitzgerald. There actually was an article the Navy Public Affairs put out 
where the ship's company was bragging about all the depot level maintenance they were able to complete because onboard ship, in addition to their regular stuff, because the depot level maintenance wasn't available. Well, that means people are having to do not just their job that they're already maximized for, but somebody else's job as well. People get burned out. People get tired. Sometimes people are relieved from command because they haven't, people, the, the catch-all phrase is lost confidence in their ability to command because they have had a breakdown. And you can only, the human, not all humans are superhuman. And you can have very good people that if you, if you sleep deprive them for weeks on end, the human part starts to break down. And that happens sometimes on board ships when you have a manning document and you consider it fully manned if you only have 85% of it. It's, it's an underappreciated challenge in our Navy that I consider an abusive work environment at peace where we do this to our sailors. It's, it's unnecessary and it's abusive, especially when you look at a lot of the shore-based manning that never goes to sea anymore. It's, it's a side issue, I guess. People should, I think our listeners should also understand, too, that a sailor that's on a, a, a man of war, a, a Navy warship, is has multiple jobs, not just their their primary job, whether it's fixing something or making something or or driving something, but they also have other jobs too, right? They have their they have a battle station, they have other things that they have to do, so they they have a lot of pressure on them, right? Yeah, and then you have your collateral duty list, and you got all your paperwork. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, the uh, review of the incidents of twenty seventeen. One of the problems was one of the officers in CIC, as opposed to doing what she was supposed to do. The CIC is what? The, the Combat Information Center. And in a, well, a well-run a well modern ship, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you're a ship, you're up on the bridge, you're looking out the window, you've got your binoculars with you, and you're saying all sorts of salty things with helms and lee helms and stuff like that. The modern warship, the Combat Information Center, depending upon the ship, it's located adjacent to or behind or under the uh, the bridge is as important, if not more important, to the bridge, especially at night, to be able to avoid uh, avoid other ships. And uh, on watch, she was going through paperwork. Uh, probably, I, th- I think they were mostly evals, uh, evaluations for her enlisted people, simply because you can't do 30 hours of work in a 24-hour day. You've got to recapture those hours somehow. And you, can, you, you can't go three days without sleeping very long until you have a break. And unfortunately, it can manifest itself in either uh, personality disorders or it can manifest itself in a warship just bungling in and hitting another ship. And before you know it, you have 17 sailors who drowned in their rack, which is what happened in 2017. Rack is bed, by the way, for those of you who don't know what that is. So Correct. correct. Got that yes. one. <laughs> and we can link back a little to the, the question about, about technology. And what was what really interesting coming out of there is there technology. The challenge with technology is is dual fold. Part of it is, and I, I say this tongue in cheek as somebody who likes science fiction. I think sometimes people read too much science fiction, and they think that uh, you can look at the space force dress uniform and see that they think that what they see in science fiction would manifest itself well in the real world. And having touch screen controls on a destroyer may look cool in space age, but when you've got 20 or 30 seconds to respond, having to go through two or three drop down menus and trying to transfer something from one screen to another doesn't work well 
in our upper upper paleolithic brain uh, you have people who think that technology can substitute for people or for eyeballs or for ears or for communication or for leadership. And it can, in theory, if the following 10 assumptions are valid, but if any one of those 10 assumptions drop out, like your access to satellite data uh, or even satellite voice communications, then the whole thing falls apart. And on the contrary, you can have technology that interferes with other people's rice bowls. Perfect example, my friend Jerry Hendricks and I, we both get an eye twitch. A little over a decade ago, we had a large naval drone was able to land and take off on an aircraft carrier. And it was technology that actually may be too good because all of a sudden, maybe you don't need all these manned squadrons. Maybe you're going to be able to move from five fully manned, uh, partially manned and equipped squadrons to four fully manned and equipped squadrons. And that fifth squadron, we're going to invest in this large unmanned aerial vehicle and we're going to play with it for a while. Instead, they killed it. They've kind of come back with a different model that might progress, but we lost a decade of development. Uh, so technology can be a, a two-edged sword. Sometimes people get too far ahead of the technology. Sometimes people will fight too hard against it. And I think recently we saw a return with a U, not a V, a return to a, uh, this, hap- this started last month or at the end of August, one of the two, where we saw a couple of, of larger unmanned surface vessels basically given to a strike group in the Pacific and said, Y'all go figure it out. Go work with it. Find out what works. That, that was nice to see. That's what we should have seen with the large uh, unmanned uh, aerial vehicle back a decade ago. I think it was a 47 Bravo. Uh, so that was, that was nice to see. So there, there are, there is some learning going on here. It's not like we haven't learned from the disaster of the last two decades. It is taking place here and there, but it's an ongoing battle because we haven't changed the underlying incentives, disincentives, and bureaucracy that created the problem in the first place. Another thing too, and I, I'm sorry, Kate, I know that, I don't know if we've answered your question, but there's just one more point that I wanted to, 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 to raise with the commander. You know, we were talking about manning levels on ships and why, you know, it's not just the fact that people have to work harder uh, when you have lower land manning levels on a ship. But, you know, as they say in the Marine Corps, every Marine's a rifleman. In the Navy, every sailor is a firefighter. Uh, in times of war, if a ship is hit, uh, damage control and putting out fires and controlling those types of things, the more people you've got, the better chance you have of saving the vessel. Is that a fair assessment? It absolutely is. And, you, and they can't be exquisitely designed because your, your damage control, your assumption is, and you have to plan for your first team is going to be killed or injured to the point they're not useful. So you have to have another team behind them and another team behind them. When you have people that don't have a an understanding of that nature of naval warfare or worst, have allowed themselves to be professionally compromised for accounting reasons to justify lower manning levels, all you have to do is you can look at, and in one of the, the bright spots, and one thing that we're very good at in the U.S. Navy and have relatively maintained um, a great record of is damage control, whether you're looking at what happened to the, the Samuel B. Roberts, the USS Cole, the Fitzgerald, the McCain, 
they all, our damage control was very good. And our ships are a little more robust than our allied ships, which is why our version of the Prim class frigates, the Constellation FFGs under construction. We just couldn't immediately turn it on because we had to Americanize it, so to speak. Uh, that's um, a very good record. But you look at the Falkland Islands, uh, the, the example of the British, two little caveats that almost always apply. When war comes, you never have enough sailors on board your ship and you don't have enough weapons. And in peacetime, the best way to save money is to underman your ships and underarm your ships. It's almost a universal constant. Okay. Um, can we go back to Kate's question and see if we could try to answer that? And I apologize, Kate, for, for basically driving us off course here. Yeah, no, I'm very happy to be off course. And <laughs> that was very punny, Michael. So I, I do want to get back to my question. I am sure. curious about, about long-term strategy and just in practice, how many different barriers are standing in the way of really learning from it. I think, though, that another area I would love um, for my layperson's edification, I would love to hear, too, about how, so we've been involved in a very land-based engagement for over 20 years. It now seems like there is increasingly more activity on the seas. And I think Certainly, Michael has pointed to this on some of our previous episodes, but I would love to get your take on the implications um, from that. It definitely, from everything that I've read, which you know is is limited, we don't have the right people or resources in place currently for what appears to be on the horizon. Um, there's like a whole bunch of stuff lumped into into that. I've got all the questions, but if any of those are interesting, I would love to hear your take. Well, you're, you're singing my tune. It's uh, it's kind of a running joke with a, a couple of friends of mine. One day I'll, I'll publish it, mostly because I'm not happy with it. But gee whiz, it's been, let's see, 20, almost three years. I have this great post I have out. It's not quite a maritime strategy post, but it's something like that. Uh, that the problem is, is you're right that we were distracted for two decades uh, with these little imperial policing exercises in Southwest and Central Asia. And, but what never changed and what never changes is geography. And by nature, we are a maritime and aerospace power. We're not a land power. We're not, you know, we're over two with Canada. We don't want to invade them again. Um, we've already had our war with Mexico. We don't want any more Mexico, though. I wouldn't mind having the Baja Peninsula for fishing, but that's a different subject for a different day. We're not going, Mexico's not invading, invading us anytime soon, nor is Canada. We don't have to worry about that. We have these two wonderful oceans, but that Pacific Ocean, it is a big logistical challenge. And what we had at the end of the Cold War, Goldwater Nichols, 1986, uh, it's like, Thank goodness everybody doesn't have their hairstyle from a 1986 still going on here. And I'm not driving the car that I drove in 1986. But unfortunately, our military still has that same haircut and is still driving the same vehicles intellectually. Uh, we are bound by the what was layered on top of Goldwater Nichols in this joint construct and how our budget is done, which has this overinflated land component bias that... We did have to tap into during our the last two decades, but that's not our natural state. And the Pacific, if you want to go to war 
west of the international dateline. Logistics is the key. Naval power is the key. And with what we have, not that we have allowed, we've ignored, the Chinese can do what they want to, but the People's Republic of China has developed these really nice conventional ballistic missiles, short range, intermediate, medium range uh, ballistic missiles that if they've got the ability to have an accurate warhead in line with what we were doing in the late 1980s, all of our fixed bases, all of our fixed magazines, all of our fixed repair facilities, Guam and West, they're what in prior generations they would understand is inside the range of the enemy's artillery. Uh, you never have in the modern war, you never have your airfields inside of range of your enemy's artillery. Uh, as you retreat, your airfields retreat first. Same thing. You don't drop anchor. You don't, your ship doesn't drop anchor under the coastal artillery of your enemy. But that's where we are right now. We do not have the Navy to fight West, not just at hull numbers, but, um, the number of VLS, vertical launch system, the cells that carry our either long range precision strike missiles like TLAM or anti-ship missiles like Harpoon or NSM or our surface-to-air missiles that defend our fleet from both aircraft and ballistic missiles, your standard missiles. We simply don't have enough of those. And you can roll that into a very harsh reality that people need to understand that one characteristic of naval warfare that we have forgotten about is if when you have a pure naval war that's going on, you don't lose 20 people in a day or 200 people in a day. You lose thousands of people in a day. And if we have to go west of the international dateline to do what I think is the most efficacious course of action that we would need to do to secure Taiwan or defend Japan or whatever, we need to be prepared that if D plus zero is when you go west of the international dateline, that by D plus 30, we have probably lost uh, upwards to 10,000 sailors, probably at least two aircraft carriers, four or five surface ships, a couple of submarines, in order to be able to project power ashore that we need to. And if you're going to lose that amount inside the first 30 days, you need an equal or larger force coming behind it. In World War II, we ran into a similar problem, which is why for most of the the Guadalcanal campaign, to use a broad sense, aircraft carriers had a very limited limited role because they didn't have that many. We had like one for a while until our shipyards that we no longer have were able to build things and get things up at the end of 43 and going into 44. Uh, so when you, if you accept that reality and you have to look at what do we have, how long can we sustain combat operations west of the international dateline, not just from a material and militarily, military point of view, but from a political point of view, are the American people prepared and ready to get the news that on D plus two, we lost a carrier and 2,500 of those 5,000 people in the carrier are dead. We lost a, a cruiser with 90% loss. We lost a destroyer with half of the crew. And then the next day, wake up and find out one of our large deck amphibs was lost and I'll just use the Bismarck, with only three survivors out of thousands. That's what 
naval warfare is. It's big, it's brutal, it's capital intensive, it's people intensive. And if you're not prepared for that, and if your leadership is not prepared for that, either intellectually or materially, you set yourself up for starting a war you're not ready to finish. And that's what has always worried me and as part of the long game series. It's been very clear what, what the People's Republic of China has been preparing to do since the 1990s. Will they do it? I don't know. But it, I, I can't read the mind of, of Xi or any of that other leadership. But what are they preparing to do? What are their capabilities? Uh, are, they, are they going to deploy to the Gulf of Mexico and attack New Orleans? No, they're not. But can they make things very challenging for us west of Guam? Uh, yeah. Yeah, they can. And more than most people appreciate. There seems to be a general disconnect between the American people and the idea of having a Navy. And it seems that people don't really understand what a Navy does for the United States. Could you sort of go into a little bit about that? And also, uh, you're talking about also about going, you know, head to head with the, the PLA, the PLAN, the People's Liberation Army Navy, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party's you know, Navy. Um, talk about, you know, maybe a little bit about, you know, where we are with them right now, because it isn't just numbers. It's also other intangibles, too, right? It is. And as far as trying to explain the Navy, there's a phrase that people like to use. And I think the British started it. Uh, sea blindness. That's the people's blindness to the importance of seaborne trade. Part of it is it's been 150 years, first the Royal Navy, then by us, that the seas were considered open outside of the World Wars. That has not been true for most of human existence. It's only through the Royal Navy and then the U.S. Navy putting the teeth to what is generally known as the international rules-based order that has allowed the global economic system to exist as it is. But all for people who have trouble understanding it, we actually, and this is a huge lost opportunity, I think, by the larger, because it's got to be politicians that make this argument, because only so many people are going to want to listen to a Navy guy. <laughs> that um, during COVID, everybody remembers the supply chain issues where all of a sudden you couldn't get things. They couldn't produce cars because they couldn't get the, get things by ship coming in here. There was a really interesting article gone out, that went out recently. Um, I, I think I re, retweeted it or re-exed it, whatever we're calling it nowadays. Uh, in World War II, the, the problems that the Germans had because they lost their access to chromium, and so they couldn't even have their engines run at full power. That if you don't produce things in your supply chain locally, when you go to war, especially if you go to war against your primary source of those materials, you're not going to have a good day. But even then, merchant ships will not get underway and do trade during a time of war because they can't get insurance and they don't want to die. And in a real global war, they've been confiscated to be used for war purposes anyway. Um, so why do you need a strong Navy? Mostly to enforce a an international order that allows the free flow of goods at market prices. There was a general crisis back 15 plus years ago because of a few uh, quasi-starving Somalis in fishing boats intercepting merchant ships for fun and profit. That's almost no threat. You have a similar problem in the Singapore Straits that still exists, but at a low boil point. 
those are just little hints of insecure uh, oceans and what that can do to an economy. And at war, again, we're an island nation. If you, if you, unless you want to go to war with Canada and Mexico, for us to be able to project power or to get our goods to market, we have to have free access to the open seas. And you cannot do that without a navy. We have treaty obligations in Europe. We have treaty obligations in East Asia. We have treaty obligations in the South Pacific, South Indian Ocean, uh, the North Atlantic. Uh, we will have to cross these oceans. And you need that power. And you, know, you mentioned also about going against the People's Liberation Army Navy, the plan. But to get to them even, we got to get through, these acronyms kill me. I just like saying that the PLARF, the People's Liberation Army Rocket Forces, P-L-A-R-F, we got to get through them first. And uh, that would be in the 99.9% chance that, that we don't strike first. The, the PLARF are not idiots. The Chinese are not idiots. They, if they got it, they're going to launch it. And uh, we'll see what what is not been hit at D plus 0.5. And then we can worry about the People's Liberation Army Navy. Our first concern is going to be the PLARF and what um, O-Plan, if the People's Republic of China decide that they want to make their move, uh, that uh, what their targeting set is, whether they're going to include Japan, whether they're going to include uh, Guam, which they can reach, whether they're going to include the Philippines, whether they're going to even include Darwin and in North Australia, they can reach them all. So um, that would be the interesting thing to see. We just saw, I think, just the past day, we saw that they were sending the uh, the USS Gerald R. Ford, the newest aircraft carrier that we talked about earlier. Uh, that battle group is right now going to the Mediterranean uh, to, to, as a show of force with the with the current war that's going on in Israel in, in, between Israel and Palestine. That's the sort of power projection that I think that Americans are they're used to, but I don't think if they necessarily uh, appreciate it. I mean, I think at some level, I mean, some Americans may wonder, well, why are we getting involved in this kind of thing? But at some other level, there's a sort of an expectation that that's what America does. It sort of sends the Navy and the Marines to certain places around the world, at least to be as a uh, as an option, I guess, or to be there to to provide uh, a reminder to people to play nice. Do you think that that would be a, a fair assessment? I think it is. And there's a certain entitlement there that we're not backing up with with money. I remember back back when I was a midshipman during the Reagan administration, I believe it was on the Atlantic, they had a cover of their magazine that had a, a U.S., what we called then a uh, carrier battle group uh, before the word battle was too militaristic, so we had to change it to something else. Um, the, all is sitting ducks. So everybody's talking about the death of the aircraft carrier. However, everybody wants it. And whenever there's a crisis, the first question is, where are the carriers and how do we get them there? Because you have this huge bit of sovereign territory that you can do a lot with. Again, this is probably another hour we could talk about here, but huge mistakes were made starting in the the end of the George W. George Herbert Walker Bush Bush 41 administration that has limited the uh, capabilities of our air wings by having a bunch of sh a relatively short-legged and fewer number air wings 
our air wings should have aircraft that have much greater ranges like they used to and had organic tanking, et cetera, et cetera. So it's still a, a force that really almost no other nation has. The Brits have a version of it, though not as robust. The French have a version of it, though not as robust. The uh, Koreans, the Italians, the Japanese, to a lesser extent, the Spanish, the Thais, uh, they're, they're all trying to have some version of that, but nothing really matches a, a U.S. supercarrier, which is why the Chinese are trying to, to build them as much as they can. The, their, their learning curve uh, is, is still pretty steep, but I, I don't count them out. If they decide they want to keep doing this, uh, eventually they'll get something that we can nod our heads and a little more respect at, especially when it comes to their air wing. Hmm. It's the other thing, too, and I would say uh, you and I had spoken about this, I think, a couple of weeks ago, but we were also talking about what we've seen, uh, what's happened with Russia and Ukraine. And we've seen that although it's not the main war, the naval war has been significant in the Black Sea. And there should be some lessons learned for us there, too, right? Yeah, it sure has. And it's, it's been very instructive and kind of tying into what we talked about before, trying to get through the PLARF. If you uh, west uh, from Guam west, I think one of the most, and I've used this analogy a couple of times. Everybody likes to talk about how the Spanish Civil War gave everybody plenty of hints in hindsight about what you would see in World War II, whether you're talking about the bombing of cities to, uh, to aircraft, etc. One of the more instructive things was the strikes on the dry docks in Sevastopol by the Ukrainians, which takes away or not just the ships that are in the dry dock, but depending upon how much damage is done to the dry docks, may mitigate uh, or eliminate even the ability for the Russians to do maintenance with their ships in the Black Sea, which means if they need to do maintenance, their ships have to leave the Black Sea. That is an underappreciated part of a naval power, is the ability to maintain service and to do battle repair and to rearm and reload your ships. That, uh, the importance of sea denial, which the Ukrainians have uh, shown as well, that even if you lose almost all of your Navy, if you have had the ability to make it painful, uh, like the, the with the sinking of the Russian cruiser, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, then you can get them to back off. It's kind of for those that have taken boxing uh, or for those that play baseball. You know, sometimes you need to get them to back up from the plate. They're still at the plate. They're still at bat, but you can get them to back off from the plate a bit if you, you know, get a ball inside on them. So that's what the Ukrainians have been able to do. Uh, there are uh, good lessons there. I think the other important lesson is going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, is the importance of seaborne trade. Uh, one of the things that I was surprised, not surprising, but unsurprisingly wrong about, I always reserve the right to be wrong. I thought last summer, or at least this summer, we would see significant uh, food supply issues on a global scale because of the, the challenges of getting enough grain out of the Black Sea that so much of the rest of the world relies on. But uh Via smart people, well-motivated, that mostly has not been a problem. Plus, the, we've been blessed with a few years of good crops. So knock on wood, if this war goes on for another year or so, we won't see 
the problems that can have pretty nasty second order effects. Because if you remember previous decades, uh, quote, Arab Spring, unquote, uh, got its kickoff over what were in essence bread riots. Yes. Uh, one And one point, just to go back to Ukraine and Russia, is just as a comparison, and it should be also as a wake-up call to the United States, the Russian fleet, although it was numerically larger, uh, it almost uh, to a scale because Ukraine really didn't have a navy at this point, uh, but the Russian fleet was undermanned, under-maintained, under-equipped, uh, probably a poor maintenance record. Uh, all of those things added up to the fact that you have an enemy who's motivated and is then using, I think, who's thinking outside the box and using weapon systems and is able to kind of negate your, your, your advantages. And that could be also maybe a warning to the United States. Yep. People, people will use what they have available uh, and they won't necessarily use them in a way that's convenient to you. And I, it was, I guess, ironic might be the right term to use, but the uh, Neptune cruise missile that hit in their close-in weapon systems, which are designed to defend the ship against uh, cruise missile attacks, and evidently they were never engaged, uh, which it's technology, it is maybe watches, you know, watch standards. But when you look at a warship, uh, what we have in the Navy is called a casualty report, so abbreviate to CASREP. You don't know what on that ship is casrept, which means if you have five different types of radars, if three of your radars are casrept, the casrept, the casualty report will say, you know, partially, it's partially operative or it's inoperative because it's missing a part or something is worn out or we have no idea or it's a software glitch. And so you can look at a ship and go, they have all these close in weapon systems and radars and, you know, everything looks great. Thumbs up, send them out there, but they might be completely defenseless, defenseless. Because uh, their their primary weapon systems are inoperable, that's one of the dangers you have. And you know, in your naval background, you know exactly what I speak. Is depending upon your incentives and disincentives in your chain of command, you might have a situation where you have a ship that does not write up when their equipment fails. They don't CAS rep because if if I report that X number of my critical machinery is broken on my ship, and that makes me look like I'm a bad skipper. So I'm not reporting that equipment. I'll just cross my fingers and, and, and hope for the best. Or I'll wait till we pull into Naples and I'll be able to get a couple spare parts and nobody will know the difference. As opposed to uh, riding up things that are broken. Because you have two types of reactions. I have, I have two destroyers. They're both Arleigh Burke classes that were commissioned two years apart. One has 15 CAS reps. The other has two. Okay, what am I doing? Am I going to say the ship with two CAS reps is a better ship? Or is my mindset, okay, what on that other ship is not being reported as a CAS rep that they don't have something close to the other ship? Mm-hmm. It's amazing how different people can have a different mindset. Uh, and so I, in my mind, what I think is that Russian cruiser, the skipper and his crew are out there with a ship that wasn't combat ready. Or their watch teams just screwed up. But my bet is probably the former, not the latter, uh, being that uh, time has not been kind to those old Slava class cruisers. Well, there's, you know, there tends to be in the military, we talked about a zero defect mentality, uh, you know, and there's an, also to do more with less 
that's always constantly drilled yeah. into people. Uh, just complete the mission, keep moving, driving forward. You know, you, you know failure is not an option. You got to keep going kind of thing. And I, I absolutely agree. I think with the Moskva, the, the, the cruiser that got sunk, I think it was a, a whole mess of things. I think it was it was weather. It was uh, it was the operational environment. It was probably the crew was probably inexperienced or tired or both. Uh, we probably had never systems weren't working, but it led to a catastrophic failure that led to the sinking of a major fleet unit. Uh, and the Russians don't have the ability to replace these things. That's the other thing too is that every time they lose one of these ships, there isn't something coming up behind it. Uh, and that's probably something too that for the United States we have to realize that too. Do we don't necessarily have the ability to quickly replace if we lose these things? It, it also ties into what we talked about before. You, you were asking about lessons of the Russia-Ukrainian war at sea. Is she was also out there by herself? There is safety in numbers that you never. You know, it's okay to do independent steaming in times of peace. Or if, you know, World War One, the SMS Emden cruised around the Indian Ocean <laughs> taking prizes until she was finally taken out. But more often than not, you want to have two ships there. It's an extra set of radar, extra set of eyes. Uh, you're more likely to uh, encounter other problems. You know, what would things have been different if that Moskva was out there with a... Um, one of their newer Corvettes or even an old Udaloy or a South Rimini in formation with her that could have helped with the situation, figuring out something could have out. You just don't know. Uh, also, you know, what, what was the Russian uh, ISR, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance? Uh, how was that communicated? There's all sorts of things that can, that can go wrong. But that's one thing that always stood out in my mind. I would like to think that we would not send a Arleigh Burke or one of our few and fading Ticonderoga class uh, cruisers off an enemy shore in range of anti-ship cruise missiles uh, by themselves. That's inviting what, what we saw. I'm going to raise something that you write. You have a, um, on Fridays, you have a regular uh, article that you call Full Bore Friday. Yeah. Uh, where you talk about uh, people and you always preface it by talking about a historical incident. And but you say you, you talk about the incident in terms of saying about people, you know, you know, this is never going to happen. This is not your skill set. Your ship is not designed to do this. Your platform is not designed to do this. Your crew hasn't been trained to do this, but it's happening. And you always bring up these historical these set pieces about people, then these people have to rise up to to deal with those types of things. So we may have to assume that although we don't hope that the United States Navy doesn't have to do those types of things or wouldn't do those types of things in war, we know that uh, it's always since the beginning of time, people are asked to do things that are not in the rule book or not in the playbook, right? That's right. And that's one of the reasons, you know, go back to my critique of the littoral combat ship, uh, is if you are going to order ships and sailors into harm's way, you want to make sure that you've given them a ship with enough robustness, robustness and capability to be able to address whatever challenges they may find. Uh, I think the, the game was given away over a decade ago when one of the CNOs at the time, I don't know if it was uh, Roughhead or, or Richardson, that make a difference. 
uh, said, well, in, in case that arises, the LCS have enough speed to run away. War doesn't work like that. If you're the only ship in the area, you will, will go there. And you cannot have a, a ship that's exquisitely designed around a single mission. Because the odds are with LCS, with the original CONOPS, is it may have left port with a mine warfare package. But if something comes up that they're needed where they might need an anti-surface capability, they're either going to go there or they're going to go home. If they're going to go home, then why do you have a ship the size of a World War II destroyer that can't do more than one mission at a time? That's, that's too limiting and too dangerous because people are going to, to have to do it anyway. Because again, everything's about compromise. You know, but what are you what are you compromising in peace that is going to have huge shortfalls at war? And a lot of my full full bore Friday, it's ultimately about leadership, and it's all ultimately about people. But they also have been given the tools that give them some flexibility to be able to take that innate personality drive or sense of duty and do something constructive with it, mm-hmm. uh, because they have been given a platform that gives them that that ability uh, but yeah I, uh, full bull friday it's uh, matter of fact, recently i've been reaching back to some of the ones i did back 2010 2011 2013 because I've, I've got a lot more readers now that maybe never saw them i i really enjoy those in big part because one thing i i believe we we mentioned to you is we just did an episode on creativity as a necessary element of survival and that failure averse environment seems so toxic. And with everything that you're saying, if you're designing a ship for one particular mission or one purpose, you're not making room for that creativity. I love the Full Bore Fridays because they make room for that creativity and thinking differently about the solution. But also with, with everything that you're saying about the casualty report, if if we are afraid to take a good look at our weaknesses and where we need to build up, that certainly points to us being set up for failure. Do you see any changes, given that there's more attention on the Navy at this point than there was, say, a year ago? Is there any effort being made to try to increase that sort of dexterity of thought? Well, there you go with the really hardest part of technology, and that's the gray matter between people's ears. And um, how do you get those people in the right positions? And I've written occasionally about the system of incentives and disincentives. And you can look back. This is, by the way, this is very big pixels here. But there's been tons of studies done on uh the one that sticks in my mind the most was about when I lived lived on the continent over in Europe about ferry accidents. But this also there's been stuff written about this about you know, train accidents and airline disasters. That in generally there are three types of people a mindset that will react in times of crisis. A minority of people are action people. They're the ones in a ferry accident where they hit a rock. It starts to list. They get up. They grab their spouse, they grab their kids, they know right where the door is, they know right where the life vests are, they grab it and they go, we're getting out of here. You have another group of people, another minority group of people, that panic. They're the ones that scream and yell and claw and make a nuisance out of themselves and get in the way of the people that are actually trying to take action. And then there's the majority of people. They freeze, they pause, 
they wait to be told what to do, or they are so overwhelmed by this unexpected external stimulus that their mind just freezes. Now, every human has a little bit of all three of those in them, but your baseline personality will come out, whichever the majority of you are. Are you 51% action, 20% panic, and the rest freeze? You know, whatever is your math. And it, it ties into that thing that, that also I believe, I don't believe that you can build character. I believe that character is revealed. And one thing that I'll get in comments sometimes on Full Bore Friday is people say, we don't have people like this anymore. We don't, you know, where are these people are? It's like, they're all around you. They're next to you. You're married to them. They're in the desk across the street from you. They're competing with you at, at Costco for that last 18 pack of diddle floss that you absolutely need for the weekend. Um, they just, the, the situation hasn't been there to, uh, to demonstrate that, that character to them. So in an institution like the military, how do you get those people in position of authority? You have to have the right incentives and disincentives, one, to recruit people, then retain them, and then promote them from within. I like to use this example. I was a, a mid-grade lieutenant commander, for the listeners who don't know Navy ranks, same thing as an Army or Air Force major, when 9-11 kicked off. And we all thought at that point that, hey, this is going to be a no-kidding war. This is going to go on for a while. We originally thought it was just going to be a year or two of a, what they, they used to call punitive expeditions. It became something else, but different topic for a different day. Um, and we said, well, this, this is great. If you're an operator and you deploy and you volunteer for combat-related orders, then you're going to be rewarded for it. And we're going to start promoting the right people for the right reasons. Fast forward a decade. That's not what happened. Our best and brightest were not always sent forward. You did not reward people who uh, interrupted a that what I called the Millington Dictac. Millington, Tennessee is where the Navy Manpower and Personnel Headquarters is, where they have these very rigid career paths you're supposed to follow. Those people were not rewarded. My my last deployment in 08 and 09 uh, to Kabul. We used to joke that we were the land of misfit toys, uh, that uh, we knew we weren't the best and the brightest, but we were here and we'll do our best. And you can look at the, the selection boards, at least on the Navy side of the house. That's that not what happened. So, and a lot of people, um, one of the best officers I never served with, never even made 05. And he didn't make 05 because a couple of months after he got his commission, uh, he was 0.1 over the blood alcohol and uh, got a DWI when he was, what, 23? That's awful. Yeah, yeah. Zero defect mentality, so to speak. God, he's such a great officer. But um, then you have people who get frustrated with their bureaucracy, um, get frustrated with who they're having to serve under, who um, uh, the classic example of uh, we've all heard these phone calls. Hey, we really need so-and-so for this 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 job over here. Well, they're, they're, they're not, they're not due to roll for orders until August of next year. Well, that's, that's bullshit. I want him, I want him January. Uh, he's only been in the command 18 months. I don't, I don't care. You give him the number one ticket on the next change of command fit rep cycle. If you know it's good for you and I want him now. And, uh, so you wind up having at least people who are, are deemed to be our best and brightest don't have that much operational experience because where they're really making their, uh, their juice is on shore duties. 
And these aren't unintelligent people. These aren't unprofessional people. These are good people. These are smart people. These are well-credentialed people. But the system we have right now does not want them at the front as much as they want them in the back helping uh, people look good on their staff. I've had uh, I had some experiences like that when I was in the Navy. I was a direct commission, so I went from a I went from an enlisted senior enlisted to an officer, um, and then I was with a number of other Mustang officers, and we had all just returned from I think uh, various deployments to the Middle East to the sandbox, and we were at some sort of medical. I remember we were going to like a, a medical uh, stand down. We were all getting our blood work and, and blood pressure checks and everything. And we were standing around talking about, uh, you know, what our next deployments were going to be. And we all assumed we'd be going back to the sandbox. And I remember we were talking to a, a commander, uh, you know, leaned in and asked us what we were talking about. We we're talking about, uh, you know, deployments, sir. Are you going to deploy? And he goes, he had never deployed. <laughs> and that was a wake-up call for us. We were very surprised. You know, we just assumed everybody was. You know, we had, everyone we knew was doing this. And yet it wasn't what big Navy, what the big Navy was doing. For the vast majority of people in the Navy, they weren't doing that sort of thing. At least that was my, my impression. And, and there, there are exceptions, of course. But uh, that... That, unfortunately, was was never fixed, at least on the Navy side of the house. And uh, that firmly is in the lap of Mullen, Roughhead, Richardson, Gilday, and Greenert. I knew I forgot Greenert. I always forget Greenert for no reason. No offense. Uh, you know, that, that's their officer corps. That's the incentives and disincentives. You could put Vern Clark in there if you want to, hmm. speaking of LCS. That, that's on them, and they cannot argue otherwise because uh, we've got tens of thousands of officers who watched it happen. We could have an entire episode on Admiral Mike Mullen. Um, I, knew, <laughs> I knew a lot of people. I knew a lot of people because I've worked mostly, and here we're going back to Goldwater-Nichols talking about jointness. Most of my naval career was spent in joint environments. And I got to meet a lot of Marines, a lot of Army, a lot of Air Force, and they had very strong opinions about Admiral Mullins. Uh, he didn't endear himself to a lot of people. So, now he he, ende- he endeared himself to some people, but uh, uh, not not very many people I know. This is true. This is true. So we've we've established why we need a Navy. We've seen some of the problems that are facing this country, and it was coming on. There's something that you and I and I think Kate have been talking about, and there is looming on the horizon the specter of a coming global conflict. Um, It may not be something that everyone wants to hear about. Maybe people don't agree with that assessment. I, for one, though, believe it's coming. But what are we doing? What are we doing as a country and specifically toward a Navy? What are we doing to prepare for this? And I think I've seen some awakening, at least in some areas, that we're trying to learn from the mistakes that we've been sleepwalking for the past 20 years. But in your opinion, you know, what are we doing right now? Uh, sadly, we're, we're coasting on inertia. And we're going into a, an election year. Not much is going to happen. I think Secnav del Toro, he you know, talked about, he didn't call it a maritime strategy. I'm blanking on it right now, which tells you how much effect it had maritime, something or other. He's trying to have a conversation about it. But at the end of the day, it's about money. It's about budgets. It's about the commander-in-chief and Congress's priorities. And for reasons best explained by themselves, but they don't explain by it, explain it, 
The present administration is not maritime focused. It's uh, got other priorities for national defense. Uh, without a larger budget for the Navy, uh, we are not going to be able to grow much. We're actually degrading in capability because our our cruisers are past their due date. We never replaced them. Uh, we're going to have to make do with the Flight 3 Arleigh Burks that are coming in. We do not have enough auxiliaries to arm and fuel and supply and maintain our, our ships. We do not have enough uh, merchant ships to be able to get hardware to the West to fight. Uh, I, I agree with you that China is going to have a coming out party at some point where they are going to announce their presence on the world stage if they think the time is ripe to do that. And a major factor in that ripeness is going to be the cost-benefit analysis for any action on their part. If weakness attracts aggression, if we are strong enough and we can help the Chinese, the Japanese, uh, the Filipinos, the to a lesser extent, the Vietnamese, uh, who are <laughs> who are strong enough, regardless of what, what, what people might think, because uh, they're a land power, in Australia, if we can help our allies get stronger, and if we can find some way to move our effort towards our natural maritime and aerospace power, then maybe we can force their calculus to prove themselves some other way as their demographic situation catches up with them uh, in the next decade really hard, and that'll make it even more difficult for them to do anything, which I think demographics is an underappreciated factor that we're going to see mid-century simply because as a species, we haven't encountered this in written memory uh, very, very much. Uh, that what we could do domestically, uh, it's going to take leadership in Congress, bipartisan leadership. It's going to have to take an executive branch that probably doesn't have as a secretary of defense, a retired army four-star, to be willing to break parts of the Iron Triangle apart. If we're not going to grow the budget so everybody gets a larger sector of pie. And if we acknowledge the fact that we are a maritime and aerospace power and our best deterrence against an expansive PRC is to make the air and the water an unattractive place for them to project power, then we need to shift money from the land component, accept risk there, over to the maritime and aerospace parts of our national security to build ships and to build aircraft and to build some robustness in the uh, satellite and IT cyber area. I don't see that happening uh, inside of the next cycle of any meaning of this. And even if, you, even if it did in the next year, it takes years to get the infrastructure in place that we need. And we're a decade late. We don't have, we don't have the shipyards right now to be able to properly maintain our submarines and surface ships much less build a whole bunch more. That's why I was asked recently, you know, what would you do? I was like, well, we're maxed out on the number of destroyers and frigates we can build, but I know that we're short in auxiliaries. Uh, what can we do on the shipyards in the Great Lakes where we actually are building a frigate and in the uh, Mississippi River area that we could build additional ships and shipyards there? You know, could we restart North Charleston before it becomes nothing but apartment blocks. 
the naval base used to have there, can we restart some of the unimaginably wonderful naval facilities we used to have in the San Francisco Bay that we decommissioned at the end of the Cold War? Can we claw any of that back? But even if we did that right now, how long would it be till you have something displacing water as a result? Say hello to 2030. Uh, yeah, it's the, the future is caught up with us, which again, going back to the long game series we talked about before, you know, where I asked, can I really call it the long game anymore? Because the long game is here. Uh, we're just now realizing the game uh, that the People's Republic of China has been working on for a quarter century plus. There, there were people in Congress, in the Senate, uh, who were champions of the Navy. You had John Stennis and a number of other people, and those people are long gone. Um, I can't think off the top of my head of really anyone who is a champion of the Navy uh, who is in Congress. Uh, is there anyone that comes to mind for you? The two primary, um, Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, which has Fincantieri that's building the uh, um, they used to build LCS. Now they're building um, the Constellation class frigates. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, he's kind of because um, he only has a 24 hour day and he's only one member of Congress. Uh, he's been assigned to do the the work, the China Commission that he's doing, doing the Lord's work there. So he's had to shift his attention from the Navy. On the Democrat side, we used to have Representative Luria, but she lost her reelection to a Republican. So she's now on the board of Huntington Ingalls, I think. So she's out of the political arena in that regards. Uh, Representative Waltz, another Republican out of Florida, even though he's a just retired Army Colonel, uh, Army National Guard Colonel, Special Forces background. He is a great advocate. He understands maritime issues, as does his staff. In the, the, the Senate, uh, Representative Weicker from Mississippi, uh, not Representative Weicker, Senator Weicker uh, from Mississippi. Uh, he's doing the best that he can. There's Representative Jim Banks, who has a naval background, but he's focused in other areas as well. I, I, your concerns are right. We don't have those giants that are working like the giants used to work for our Navy. Uh, how you replace that, I I really don't know. That's like sad. And I've, I've asked for years uh, for administrations from both political parties when they, they're they're picking a SECNAV, or even they're picking a SECDEF, but definitely SECNAVs. And Del Toro got close because he was a fundraiser. But I have always thought the best candidate for Secretary of the Navy is a politician. Because what politi po being a politician, it's, it's not an amateur hour. It's a skill set. You've got to be able to read people. You have to be able to walk into a room and know who in that room is worth your time. When you're talking to a person, a politician can tell in the first few seconds, is this person going to be flexible? Are they my friend? They are my enemy. If I'm talking to them long enough, I can figure out which rib I need to tickle of theirs to get something out of them. You need that. You need a politician, somebody who's willing to compromise, can find people's weak spots, know where their interests are, know where their strengths are, know what's on their, know who is on their staff, who's good on their staff. We really need a Secretary of Navy who can do that, but they need to work in our, our present structure. They need to have a sec Secretary of Defense who also is willing to make that move. And uh, we don't have that right now. Uh, Deputy, Deputy Secretary of Defense uh, Kathleen Hicks 
is probably one of the more powerful deputy sec defs that we've had in quite a while. Uh, even though her father was a naval officer, uh, she's not per se helping us more than anybody else. So on the executive branch, there's going to have to be some changes there. Uh, I, I think either political party could do it, but the, the present crew isn't going to happen. And in Congress, we're going to have to have more than Waltz, Gallagher. Um, you know, we have some former naval officers that are congressmen like Crenshaw of Texas, but he's focused elsewhere. And I would really, really like to see um, a Democrat or two step into the huge void that was left by Representative Luria, because you can't just have your best congressmen and senators from one political party. It's got to be both, because uh, when you talk to members of Congress, when they're in conference behind closed doors, these people might be uh, representatives, they might be senators, but they're no more smart than you or me. And their world experience and their life experience depends upon their background. And they may not, they may think that the ocean around Taiwan is the same as the ocean around Bermuda. They don't understand maritime stuff. They think that, well, I once took a cruise through the Caribbean. I have an idea about the water space in the Indo-Pacific region. I, it's just shocking some of their perspectives. But, you know, they're, they're human beings, too. They have 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they have an IQ of, you know, X. So I would really like to see emerge from the mist. And if anybody knows, let me know who they are. Have their staffers reach out to me. I'd love to talk to them. Uh, I would really like to see who the next uh, Democrat representative in Congress is to, to fill Representative Luria's gap. And then I'd want to move the decimal point over one because we can't have two or three. In a body that's, you know, 200 and change of either party, uh, you've got to have a critical mass. What is that critical mass? I would like to have at least 10 to 20 percent of those people that know the difference between bathothermy and a bathtub. That would be helpful. Do you think it's going to take a major event for people to pay attention? Sadly, perhaps. Yeah. Um, sometimes that's the only thing to wake it up. But, you know, let's go back to, you know, kind of what we talked about in the, the first part of our discussion. You know, define major event. Um, major events at sea tend to be... Uh, <laughs> The tactical becomes strategic very fast. Yeah. When mm -hmm. the when the Japanese put the the Russian fleet, two Russian fleets at the bottom, uh, that led to a revolution uh, in 05. And that 05 revolution uh, came back in spades in 17. Uh, you tend to lose thousands to tens of thousands of people. Pearl Harbor was a wake up. I don't think we want another one of those. So what what does that look like, that wake up? Uh, I don't know. An advantage we had before World War II, and to a lesser extent, World War I, where the Europeans were beating each other to a pulp for years before we got involved, so we were able to ramp up, is, yes, we went to war in 41, Europe went to war in 39, but we started building our Navy in earnest in 36. So we had half decade to get our industry, not quite up on step, but close to it. The first 18 months of World War II, we were thin at sea. Again, going back to the Guadalcanal Canal. Now we had this huge, which Yamamoto knew, we had this huge bow wave of ships that were going to show up in 43 that uh, nobody could match. 
Uh, we were just going to drown them in, in, in gray steel, which is what we wound up doing. Uh, but getting there is a problem. So, yeah, we had Pearl Harbor, but we had five years before Pearl Harbor where we already were getting the RPMs up and running. All we need to do is pop the clutch and off we were going. We, we're still at idle speed right now. So mm. if you look at, some people call it the Davidson window. Uh, it's a, a term of art for now retired Admiral Davidson, which I think it was like from, from 24 to 34. So let's, you know, let's stick with that term, 25 to 35, whatever. Between now and 2035, which is the time of most vulnerability against the People's Republic of China, I think that's a good of an argument as any. Uh, that doesn't mean that we can't go to war tomorrow or that we can't go to war in 2040. It's just the, the greatest vulnerability point. So if that's true, then what's the middle point of that? That's 2031, if I'm doing my math right. I'm not doing my math right. <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, we'll call it 2030. Oh, yeah. if, if we want to get going in 2030, so we got seven years to get running, okay? So if we want to be, if we want to pop the clutch at 2030, we want to fix our naval forces where they need to be. And if we're going to use the uh, Two Ocean Act of 1934 as your template, then we need the, I believe it was my, my friend Jerry Hendricks used the Four Ocean Act. Uh, we need to get that up and running in 2025, uh, which would mean after the next election. Uh, I don't see having a strong Navy being a big part of that, but you never know what combination of politicians that you're going to get, but it's not going to happen mm -hmm. in a vacuum. We need the new CNO, who I haven't heard all that much from. I wish she would hit the road and hit the TV. Uh, she has to be our primary spokesperson. Um, I don't see, because we have an election year coming up where politicians are going to be investing all that much time. And uh, I, I don't see the world environment giving us much hints about the uh, the importance of sea power besides us having the, the uh, our carrier nuke its way across the, the med to sit off uh, the Gaza Strip and, and wave the flag around. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we have ways to get there. I'm pessimistic that we're going to take any of those. Mm -hmm. Absent what you said, Kate, is some kind of disaster. And it's a disaster yeah. that I don't know how we recover from if it really goes bad. I think we're already in the midst of this, though. I mean, if if you want to use, I mean, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Sure does. And you and you mentioned, of course, Spain, uh, but there was also Finland, there was Ethiopia, there was China. There were yep. all of these things that were coming up, you know, in the '30s uh, that were leading up to this. Um, the United States, as you mentioned, had the Two Ocean Act. I'm glad you mentioned that. The other thing, too, I don't think a lot of Americans realize that we had a peacetime draft prior to the Second World War that helped to sort of prime the pump for at least having enough people with training so that we could put them in and start growing uh, our land force. Uh, and we're nowhere near that. Uh, we're, we, we have no political will or anything else uh, to be looking toward, I think, rearmament or preparation i think we must you know, we have to prepare for what's coming and we are going to be i think we're going to be caught flat-footed if we're not careful and uh, and part of the problem is is we always have to remind ourselves that we suffer from that post-cold war environment where we were the unipower the uh mm -hmm. you know the jesus jones era right here right now there's no place i'd like to be is the world will go from history as mr fukuyama 
like to tell everybody. Um, so we have, if you're born in 1991, what are you, 32 years old? You know, you just made, you're about to make major lieutenant commander, congratulations, your whole life. You didn't know what the Cold War was. You didn't know what it was like to, like I joke around with my, my kids that are all in their, their 20s now, which I'm still recovering from, um, that, you know, there's, there's no reason for anybody to complain because, when, you know, when I was growing up, we were always 30 minutes or where I lived mm-hmm. or in Florida, we were all 15 minutes from being nuked. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's a different world. So we, we have a lot of unused muscles in that regard where people um, don't think that it's possible because we, mm-hmm. to- we haven't told the story, the imperial we. The American people have not seen what is growing west of the international dateline and what those implications are. And our allies have been the same way. We've all been kind of uh, sleepwalking into this strategic oblivion. The uh, the People's Republic of China, they have a bone to pick with history. And mm-hmm. they, got, they have bones to pick with their neighbors. They've got bones to pick with us. And they've got bones to pick with themselves, too. Containment would be wonderful, but you, you cannot contain an aggressive power with hopes, prayers, thoughts, feelings, and multicolored signs you put in your front yard. It doesn't work that way. You have to speak their language. And on the international stage with an aggressive growing power, that's how, that's the language you speak. Power. Do not mm-hmm. go here. Do not come here. Do not do that. Do what you want to on the other side of what you own, but don't come over here. And if you don't have the power to back that up, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, to, to change, mildly change your phrase, you and what Navy? Mm-hmm. You know, in the Pacific, I have 200 more ships than you do. And we'll see how many of those ships are going to make it through my, my rocket forces. Do you, is it worth it? Do you really want to do that? Mm-hmm. Uncle Sam, I don't care what you do on your side of the international dateline. I really don't. But you come over in my backyard. We're going to do it on my terms. Do we have the ability to see their bet, match it, and raise them? Mm-hmm. And we don't right now. Yeah, I think that's that is certainly an unnerving place to wrap up. <laughs> but I know we have taken lots of your time. Um, would love to have you back to talk about any number of things, uh, really, at any point. Before we sign off, I did want to ask, do you have a favorite book or movie that either is, you know, a fantastic sort of historical fiction or speaking of sci-fi, one that has inspired you to think creatively about future solutions. Ah, nobody told me there'd be a pop quiz. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> no, I was kind of hoping you'd talk about um, Escape from New York because you and I had talked about that. So. <laughs> yeah. We, we, I know of a couple places in, in recent, um, recent news that are kind of reminding me of Escape from New York in a variety of ways. Um, well, movie, you can you can judge a man of a certain age by his DVD slash Blu-ray collection. Uh, those <laughs> as long things as it's I find... not a laser disc. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm still a kid. I'm still a kid. Um, I'm early cohort Gen X, as I keep reminding people. Uh, and it's, it's a military... Now, Kate, you, you and I can... We should. We can probably talk about this, but really, I'm a huge Jane Austen fan. The Kira Knightley version is the only version, and I watch it with my family all the time. But you're, but wow, 
did I, not see that coming. But, but <laughs> if you're talking, it's so about relationships, people, arrogance. As you, I just, I just, every, I'm right there with you. I yes. Love, I just, you know, give me, give you, me a couple. Me and my mom. <laughs> we'll get, we'll get a, a couple of, of good bottles of wine and we're exactly. just, we're just going to dive right into it. Uh, <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> wait, uh, what was his name? The version that had him coming out of the pond without his shirt on. What was that one? <laughs> Uh, what oh, was that actor's uh, name? Oh, God. Anyway, not that I'm here to talk about men without their shirt on. That's, a, again, a different <laughs> episode for a different day. Uh, I'll have to tell my wife I talked to another woman about her favorite scene. So, uh, yeah, but, <laughs> She's got great taste. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look at anything like him. Uh, but Das Boot, the director's cut of Das mm. Boot. You have to watch it in German with English subtitles. I've watched it tons of times. I think it it captures small unit leadership well. It mm-hmm. captures the different personalities and the dynamics you can have on board a ship, especially um, in combat, the decisions you make, uh, what an opponent, what an ally, what an enemy is, what is the cost of war, why do people go to war? It doesn't really answer any of those questions, but <laughs> it addresses them. And it every, asks them really well. <laughs> and and every time I watch it, I get a slight nuance. I, when I live, mm. when I, my, 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 my poor family, actually my family is very blessed. When I lived on the <laughs> continent, uh, the, the first time I went to Munich, I dragged the whole family with me. I was like, we've got to go to the the Munich movie studio. And they're like, why? It's like, because they still have the mock-up of the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody had to go. They did, it's still there that they filmed Das Boot in. And you go in and I got pictures of me by the periscope and touching all the little things. And Yeah, that was, was, I, think awesome. that was I think that was the same trip that my family was forced to do a staff ride um, where the uh, uh, Churchill... Blenheim, the Battle of Blenheim, because mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to, Prince Eugen of Savoy, and when he went after the Elector of Bavaria, and uh, anyway, hey, I can bore people forever. So that would <laughs> that would be that would be the movie I would say is Das Boot. And your second question was oh that that was it. It was just oh. what is your what's your favorite? So yeah, Das Das Boot. Um, that that would definitely be. And so, oh, you asked about science fiction. That's right. Especially the first, the first season, and to a slightly less extent, the second season of The Expanse, I mm-hmm. thought was very good. Again, because mm-hmm. the the technology wasn't as pixie dust as you see in a lot of science fiction. They kind of mm-hmm. explained it and the compromises of it. Uh, it was the, pe- the 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 dynamics of people, the dynamics of, of governmental systems, people's motivations economics, poverty, status, power. I, th- I think mm-hmm. the first two episodes of The Expanse, if people haven't seen it, I uh, should definitely give it a watch. I, it, I, would just, I would just offer to them, you got to get through the first two and a half episodes where you think you're in some retro 1950s noir detective series. That's part of it in the first two and a half episodes, which actually I kind of like, but a lot of people are like, <laughs> just get through that. It'll be fine. <laughs> And the other stuff comes into play. I'm going to have to check that out. I would recommend reading The Cane Mutiny by Herman Walker. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we, we all served with those guys, you know. 
Yes, I, I have that book by my, my bedstand. I have a used copy I picked up when I was in Australia, a hardcover. And it, I, I read that, and that was a great primer to be a junior officer or to even be in the military about, yeah. you know, about the things there. And, and later in the civilian world, you know, working for companies, trying to understand if these are rational people, you know, leaders that you're working for, you know, but it's, it's a, that's a fantastic book. And, and another thing about it too, similar to Das Boot, it asks a lot of questions and it addresses those questions, but it really doesn't fully answer it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things involving the military national security that, you know, there aren't, there aren't perfect answers, there are clean answers, and often there's just the answer you wind up with and hope that it works. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. I'm sure Michael is, is also ooing and aahing over it. I was just going to say that you. this has been something that I've wanted to do for a very long time. So for me, this is a dream come true. So I can die a happy man tonight. So. <laughs> Well, again, you know, if y'all ever want to talk again, um, uh, I'd absolutely uh, would, would be glad to do it. Really enjoyed it, Michael and Kate. Thank you very much for the invitation. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sal. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of The Canary Group. If you like us, please subscribe and give us five stars on your favorite listening app. Have something you'd like us to dig into? You could reach us at info at canarygroup.org. You can also find us online at www.canarygroup.org and on social media at canarygroup.org.